Hey folks, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Embellish Podcast, a podcast focused on product stories, product storytellers, interesting brand ambassadors, and any other tangent that I happen to come up with. Whether you're a bourbon fan, a geek, a casual observer, or someone just floating through this channel, you're sure to waste a few minutes listening to what I have to say, and I hope you find it interesting. Um, if you got here by chance, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. I can be found on any podcasting platform that exists. If you can't find me on a platform, send me an email at embellishpod at gmail.com, and I'll try to get that taken care of. I also generally live stream the recording of these episodes on YouTube on Wednesday nights around 9.30 Central Standard Time. You can find all of my links on Instagram at embellishpod or Twitter with the same handle. I have a website. It is www.embellishpod.com. And that is a place to pick up these links, episode details, and even some one-off tasting notes. Today is April the 13th of 2022. We're going to be talking about Bardstown Bourbon Company finished whiskeys, specifically those revolving around grapes and grape-type casks. Um, before we do that, we'll do what we always do and chat a little bit beforehand. Um, things that have happened in the last week since the last stream. I actually uh, went to, I guess if we rewind a little bit, uh, mentioned this on the last stream, and it's something that has just sort of stuck with me. Uh, this idea from Whiskey Weekend Batch 4 that the podcast hosted of Whiskey Church, and I have not been able to get it out of my head. Um, it's really sort of resonated with me, and I think it's really indicative of what actually happened there. Um if those guys, I'm going to give it a little bit of time, if those guys don't do anything with that term, I'm absolutely going to steal it because that's the best thing you can do. But it, it embodies the things, you know, it's, it's definitely got a, a Western Judeo-Christian concept and a lot of us come from those similar types of backgrounds. But Whiskey Church is exactly that. It is a, a community. It's, it's a place for people to come together. It's an opportunity for education. It's an opportunity for sharing. It's an opportunity for acceptance and being inviting and all of these different things. So um, when I take that uh, phrase from some folks who might not use it so well, church, uh, and use it for something that's fun, use it for something that's that's interesting and, and more uh, useful in, in my mindset. Also, last Thursday, uh, a week ago tomorrow, um, I w had the opportunity, wonderful opportunity, to join um, Eric and Perry from This Is My Bourbon Podcast, Chad from My Daily Bourbon, Swan, and I can't remember the, the last guy's name right off the top of my head. It was sort of a hazy day uh, to do a barrel pick with New Riff um, at the, the distillery there. Uh, actually, it was off-site from the distillery, but we did go back and spend some time at the distillery, and it was it was an absolute blast. You know, It was what I expected it to be, and then some. Uh, had a great time hanging out with those guys. Uh, we got to um, Newport. I was I was staying in Newport with my family, doing a little quick spring break trip. Did an aquarium and a zoo, and all those things that you do as as a family. Um, but we met up at a liquor store parking lot, which is shared with the party source. It's shared with the the New Rift parking lot. Um, and since I was there with my family, I had to catch an uh, Uber over to the the liquor store, which you know feels weird in and of itself. Saying hey. Uber driver just dropped me off at the liquor store. The guy was like, hey, do I need to wait here in case you need a ride back? And I was like, nope, uh, going to be here for a while. Um, so you know, what was that guy thinking? But uh, we had had some pre-pick pours that we were going to share. And so I'd brought my own glass, and I started walking around a party source realizing um, they sell glassware there. And so I had my um, Whiskey Wisdom glass um in my pocket and I was like, eh, I better go back outside because I don't want to ruin this day by uh, having a conversation with with the uh, security of the of the store. 
they didn't sell, obviously they didn't sell what I had in my pocket. Uh, but man, that would have been a tough description to get, kind of get through. Uh, once the guys got there, we all sort of met up, hopped in cars, ran over, um, into Covington, had lunch, uh, at a local place that had, um, vintage pours. And, you know, I, I love an opportunity to drink something that's vintage. I had a, a seventies IW Harper, which was, you know, super fantastic. Um, and, Perry and Chad Perry from this is my bourbon podcast and Chad from um, my daily bourbon had an opportunity to try I believe it was a Jim Beam decanter and um, the the rule of the restaurant was if you finish the decanter you get to keep it so that was pretty cool because uh, between Eric and myself we finished off the nope Eric myself and Chad eventually finished off the IW Harper but Perry and um, Chad finished off the the Jim Beam decanter and they brought it over Uh, so he ended up with two fantastic decanters um, but he also ended up with a with he and Perry both ended up with a belly full of hazy IPA bourbon. Um, what they had brought out was super cloudy, um, you know, and and you never know what it's going to be like. But they had a they had an interesting experience with that particular whiskey. Um, so you know, maybe later on in the day we shouldn't have trusted their palate nearly as much whenever it came to picking the the bourbon. Uh, you know, realistically, should they still have a far better palate than mine? But you know, we joked around about that. Um, ran over, did a quick tour of New Riff. That was uh, fun. It was it was more of a, a barrel slash bottling location than a distillery, uh, realistically. Um, but it was a fun tour. Didn't spend a ton of time on it because, you know, most of us had have already done tours before. So we got to see in a Rick house, got to see some of the things they're doing, see some of the experimental casks that they've got coming up. Um, some really interesting things floating around in that Rick house over there. And I'm not going to share any of them because I'm not sure if they're supposed to be or not. You know, we we sort of poked our heads around a little bit more than maybe the average tourist might do because um, we're looking for those types of things. But saw some really unique casks, really unique casks and really unique types of, of whiskey that might be coming out of New Riff in the, in the coming months and years. Um, <clears throat> once that was over, we sat down at the table to pick. They brought out five samples, you know, labeled one through five, obviously. And they put in front of us a sheet, and that sheet had the five samples that we were tasting in front of us. But the order of the sheet in the order of the samples didn't necessarily match. There was no numbers affiliated with it. And so we got um, some nosing, tasting, and finish notes, uh, as well as a numerical indicator of what it was, and then its age. We didn't get anything around what its proof was, um, got some some kind of indications. And so we sat down and, you know, everybody, we, we tasted, this is my first experience, so I was super excited about it. I told the guys when we started, I was like, I'm just here to drink whiskey and watch you guys work. Now, I'm not going to be of any benefit, and um, that proved to be pretty much true. Uh, I, I, I picked a barrel that immediately everyone else talk, tossed out right off the bat. Um, but it was, like I said, it was, it was super fun. So we tasted through, stayed relatively quiet for a while. Everybody kind of picked out. Um, the rest of the guys were writing down tasting notes, but I'm not, I don't have that educated of a palate. I don't have... Um, that degree of sophistication in, in, in what I'm doing. So I just started off ranking the ones that I thought were, um, you know, my, my favorite nose, my favorite um, tasting, and then my favorite finish, you know, kind of giving them a one through five ranking since we had five um, and sort of derived out what I thought were my picks. And what I ended up with were three, four, five were my favorites with one and two being my least favorite. And three was my primary as, as this particular sampling set went. Um, and three was the one that everybody immediately tossed out. It was, I think the one that was, and maybe this is what it was for me is it was the one that was the most, 
off profile, the most unique of the of the five. And so maybe I lean that way because it was something that I could absolutely tell was was very, very different. Um, but, you know, we, we made it through that after we got through that first one. I think I had in the order that I had picked was three, four, five of what I wanted. Three, four, five, two, one, I think is what my order was. Um, and, you know, we, we worked through it. We ended up picking number four. And so that was super fun. Once the, the pick was over, we were able to um, – draw off a little bit of a sample of ours. Um, I still have my one through five. Um, I ordered some pipettes and I'm going to make a, a quick, maybe in the gla- in the Glen blend of one through five of equal parts, you know, and, and kind of see what that comes out like and see, you know, is it better than the individual uh, parts? Because, hey, why not? You know, let, let's see what that is. But it was, like I said, super, super fun experience. Uh, super appreciative of the, of the opportunity to join those guys. Um, if you don't know who they are, go out there, follow them, listen to their podcast. They've got a meetup event coming Labor Day weekend, Memorial Day weekend, not Labor Day, Memorial Day weekend in Lexington. Um, tickets are relatively affordable, uh, unless you're looking at the, even at the VIP, uh, t- the VIP offering is, is pretty affordable as far as, uh, meetup type events go. Um, so that they're going to have an event uh, in Lexington, uh, can't wait to go that that's when we actually are going to get the opportunity to pick up our bottles um i i didn't know whenever i pre-purchased my bottles that i was going to get an opportunity to go be a part of the selecting uh group and so i bought two bottles just because i wanted to support the guys and now i'll have one that i'll be able to store and one i'll be able to drink so that's going to be a little bit fortuitous because i have you know the thing that i helped select hey robbie thanks for showing up tonight yeah i don't know if it was a hub and a watt factor as much as it was a one of these things is not like the others. And so, um, I really, like I said, had a fantastic time. Uh, hope there's an opportunity where I'll be able to do another barrel pick with, with them or anyone else in the future. Um, maybe now that I've kind of got the lay of the land, I can provide a little bit more use, but, um, we'll go ahead and launch into what we're going to talk about tonight. And, um, if you haven't listened before, I am a big fan of what Bardstown Bourbon Company is doing, specifically around their Fusion Series, their Discovery Series, their finishes, the the ethos of their entire distillery. They're, they're creating an environment. They're creating a vibe, a, a long-term sustainable thing. And, um, you know, there's some recent news about them as far as acquisitions go. And um, I've got some details, or some not, not some details. There's, there's nothing there, but I've got a... Um, a, a buzzed feed news segment that I want to do talking about the acquisition and who acquired them. But I wanted to talk about specifically their grape type finishes. Um, and, and it's a little bit of a weird way to say it, but uh, they've done a series of wine, cognac and armagnac finishes. Um, and all of those uh, beverages have their roots firmly planted in the tenuous soil of the grape. Um, grapes can be fickle and tough to deal with. And, um, you know, two of the three are, you know, distilled versions of grapes, uh, with wine just being the, the fermented and, and filtered final version. Um, but with cognac and armagnac, those are highly regulated categories to begin with. And, you know, I think at some point in time, we're probably going, I'm probably going to, I say we like there's somebody else in the room with me. I'm probably going to do a stream on those two types of distilled spirits because I think they're um, interesting. And I think that they're, well, I know that they're growing as far as a finished category for whiskey is. Um, I have some Armagnac on hand. I do not have any cognac that I keep around um, that is non-cocktail type beverage. Um, 
it's one of those things where if you enjoy the finish, maybe you should try the original spirit to kind of uh, figure out what the through notes are and how they help each other. And, you know, do they accentuate, change, impart, make it better, make it worse? Um, you know, uh, we're not covering all of Bardstown Bourbon Company's um, grape options. Uh, I'm omitting their sherry finish because a lot of people are doing sherry. So I wanted to focus on the ones that were kind of unique. And I'm going to start with um, the Bardstown Bourbon Company Ferran. And that was one that I talked about a little bit late, late last year because it was one of my favorites from 2021 as far as um, a beverage. And that's what I'm going to drink but it was also um one of the most recent ones one of my the the most recent acquisitions that i have in this particular series and so i started doing a little bit of a deep dive to try to figure out what is ferrand cognac and ferrand has been around and in the way that many cognac and armagnac companies have has been around for a very 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 long time um they are um they're a little bit unusual as far as cognac um, makers go. Um, they control the entire process from from grape to glass, I guess you consider it, or maybe from ground to glass. Um, they, you know, they make their their cognac from 100% Grand Champagne, Champagne estate grown grapes, and then they distill on the lees. And um, that's a that's a term that can be tossed around. A lot of people may or may not know what the the lees is but distilling on the lees is basically leaving dead yeast cells over dead yeast cells in the distillate as you distill it and a lot of people will avoid that because it is a solid it's it's a solid that floats around in the liquid and there's a, a a potential or a danger for that to stick to the bottoms or the sides of the still they burn they can leave some off flavors they can do some things and so what what we're finding is that they're using what we know is that Ferran uses um, small 660 gallon pot stills and they distill the spirit slowly which if you're going to distill on the lees you have to um, so it, they feel that it gives them distinct fruit aromas and, um, more body and more flavor. Uh, and I would tend to agree with that if the, if the, the whiskey is, is any indication of, um, the, the initial value, the initial product that kind of goes into this, but, um, they, they take that distillate and then they age it in, um, limousine oak casks uh 270 liters and i'm not going to do the conversion on that you can likely look that up and then they you know there's obviously a lot of cognac and armagnac is blended after aging but they age in seven diff seven different aging cellars and they have some that are dry and some that are humid and they control their their dryness or their humidity based off of the type of the floor that is um on the bottom of the cellar um you know and that's that's another thing to kind of think about is that in France, they're looking at cellars because they want they want it to age over a significant amount of time. Whereas in Kentucky, we're putting them in metal barns and hoping that they age uh, faster. Um, that they are more susceptible to temperature swings, humidity swings, all of those different things. Those are the things that we consider making bourbon or you know whiskey in the United States super interesting. Whereas the exact opposite happens, uh, where they're they're aging over an extended period of time. And so earthen floor cellars have more humidity. Cement floor cellars have, um, have 
cement floor cellars have more dryness to them, obviously, and they're able to control that. Um, then, you know, there's some thick limestone walls that are involved. So we get to carry on that limestone conversation, whether it matters that it's limestone or matters that it's thick. Um, not really entirely sure, but it's going to help with coolness and maintaining that constant humidity, having something that is uh, semi, semi-permeable, um, but it's not going to allow an easy flow in and out. And then they, during the aging process, the, the cognac is going to spend time in various different types of casks, um, toasted to different levels, um, and, and, and from what it reads like is there's a continual tasting and checking in on these aging barrels to make sure that they don't get excessively bitter, that they don't pick up too much tannins or too much oak, and so they're continually moving this around to make sure um, that is that it's doing exactly what they want it to do. And so we started with using small pot stills and distilling on the leaves, which is going to be a slower process. Then we're using, you know, seven different cellars with different types of, of humidity control. And now we're moving it around from barrel to barrel. Um, there's a lot of care and effort that is going into creating this particular cognac. Um, and then um, it's, it's, you know, put in the put in the bottle, and then these barrels are now being shared with um, Bartstown Bourbon Company for them to age their 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 source distillate in. And they don't, you know, Bartstown is pretty good about being straightforward about this being a Tennessee whiskey, um, and the one that I have specifically, if I remember correctly, is a nine year um, Tennessee whiskey that is aged. Uh, 18 months in their barrels and so they're they're doing this a similar process and so what does aging a um, Tennessee distillate in a uh, French cognac barrel impart to the flavor I don't know what Ferran cognac tastes like personally but I can uh, be smart enough to go and look up tasting notes and so that's what I did is and that's what I did with all four of these that we're going to talk about tonight I went and looked up what tasting notes exist for the Ferran cognac what tasting notes exist for the whiskey itself and try to find the places where there's similarity and then identify if there are any unique things that are in one but not the other you know, because whiskey is going to have its own unique flavors that it brings along with it, uh, considering it's aged in, you know, new charred oak and then put in this particular one to finish. And so the Ferrand is supposed to be heavy. It's supposed to be um, thick and, and um, complex, which I would say carries through. I mean, that's that's a that's a that's a through note for everything here. But they'll talk about the 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 flavors of pear and being silky and these things are not necessarily noted in the whiskey nearly as much there is a there's a note of of tree fruits for the cognac and the closest thing you might get to that would be peaches um that that's supposed to be coming out in the whiskey and you know these are not my notes obviously i'm not i'm not the one that can come up with these things um but you know vanilla vanilla is a is a note that comes from ferrand and then the whiskey gives us chantilly cream and so those things i think you can draw pretty pretty direct line between those two items and then um cinnamon cinnamon is in both but you know we would expect that to be there and then the, the whiskey itself brings along its own uh potential nuttiness you know t- tennessee is known for minerality and sometimes known for uh some nutty flavor so you're picking up some some unique flavors but what 
I think what both of them effectively do, and maybe that's what's enticing about this particular um, expression, is the complexity of it and the the weight of it. It doesn't um, it doesn't feel heavy like a motor oil, but it feels it feels like a th- a thinking man's whiskey. If if that connects with you, there's a there's a um, a wildlife podcaster that I listen to, and he'll call you know like. You know, Squirrel is a thinking man's chicken whenever you come to cooking it. Like, it has similarities, but you have to really focus on whatever it is that you're consuming. Um, and I think that's what that's what this is. This is a very much a, um, you're going to drink it and you're going to ponder over whatever it is that's here. And I, I agree with that entirely. Um, it's fantastic. Of the, of the four that we're going to cover, and I only have three of them uh, because... The, the very last one, the one that's finished in Armagnac, I don't have it. I, I didn't pick it up whenever it initially came out, um, and I regret that. You know, there's those bottles that you regret not big, picking up. Uh, one of them for me is, is Bomb Burgers. I was offered some Bomb Burgers before um, that hit and was like the thing for a hot minute and passed on it. Um, saw the, the, the Armagnac finished one, and that was before I knew a ton about finished whiskeys. Um, and just passed on it. Just didn't, didn't know a ton of things. Um, so the next one we're going to talk about is the prisoner, um, French Oak red wine finish. Um, I have a, a sort of a special place in, in my own recollection for prisoner wines to begin with. Um, I didn't know a ton about the prisoner wine until probably five or six years ago. I was at a, a work event and one of the one of my boss's boss's bosses was sitting at a dinner table with me. We were just talking about life and things. We had been broken into very small groups, have dinner. You know, it was like 10 of us. Um, we were at an event where there's 100 people. You get broken to 10, and I'm sitting next to a guy that's, you know, so so far above my pay grade that I'm sort of nervous to even be there. But we started talking about food and beverages and wine and career or whatever. And he was a huge fan of prisoner wine specifically. And, you know, subsequently we it's become pretty big, um, pretty big brand, pretty, pretty notable brand for people who like to drink wine. I think it's on neophiles is, is what they are. I could be wrong there. Um, but he, a couple of years ago, he decided he was going to retire from the company and it was whenever the first, uh, iteration of Bartstown, uh, prisoner wine came out. That was when they were doing the nine year. Um, I, there's a nine year, there's a 10 year, there's like two different versions of it. And I had the 10 year. Um, and so I knew, you know, like they were having a going away retirement party for him. And, you know, part of the effort was a bunch of different people were trying to collect different wines, um, for him to fill his cellar with, you know, he's that kind of guy. And being that our office is based in Kentucky and, we don't know a ton about wine and I knew this had just come out and I was a fan of what Barton was doing. I did everything, you know, I burned up all my whiskey camera I could to find a bottle of this to give to him. And now he's not a big whiskey guy to begin with. And so whenever he finally tries it, you know, it's, it's going to come across a lot like jet fuel for him because, uh, it may be only a hundred proof, but if you're used to drinking wine on a regular basis, hundred proof is pretty high proof for you, but, um, it's got some distinct flavors. But I didn't know a ton about Prisoner as a wine company uh, to begin with. And so in an effort to kind of better understand what this is, I started poking around and, and like looking at what Prisoner is. And Prisoner Wine is a, is Prisoner as a company is 
a company that is this focused in a lot of really societally important um, initiatives. They do a lot of things about educating people um, around diversity, inclusion, a whole host of things. And so, you know, that, that immediately catches your attention. Like this is a, this is a company that has a conscience to, to them and, and what they want to do. And so what we have as, as a part of their particular, um, wine offering is, um, blends. These are, these, this is a red wine blend of a host of different things. Um, and using some really, uh, beautiful artwork to, to sort of adorn their labels. And that's one of the, the fun things about these, these expressions is that the backside of all of these bottles have something that has to do with the, the brand they partner with as sort of a, an, uh, embossed logo on the backside of it. Um, but they, uh, they partner with uh, a ton of different growers in Northern California, try to, to put together as much fruit as they can, and they want to create unique wines. And that's exactly what they're doing. They're creating some some red wine blends that are um, that are capturing attention and, and, and capturing market share. Um, so, you know, Bardstown with the Ferran, they partner with a really storied, uh, long-term uh, company that has been making cognac for a very, very, very long time and has a very intentional process in how they do it. Whenever they partner with this particular wine company, it's a it's a company that has a high degree of social consciousness to them and what they're trying to to do in the world. Um, and you know the the um, the company is 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 ran. The director is is ran by a person who just you know kind of comes to. Uh, winemaking through a really, really circuitous path. It's not something that is kind of a direct thing. And you find that a lot in whiskey too. And so, um, you know, a storied cognac brand, a red wine company or a wine company that makes a red wine that has a high degree of social consciousness. Um, you know, there's some good stuff here, but you know, at the end of the day, the story means nothing if the, the whiskey isn't any good. And so this one, whenever we're trying to do the comparison of one to the other, you know, we pick up from prisoner the, 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 the things that connect to each other, you know, vanilla. So vanilla from one to the other, that's not a hard one to pick up. Um, but then there's this blackberry note and, and I will agree with that particular note. there's this rich blackberry note that exists there. Um, but what I find is from the prisoner wine, which I've actually had, it has, maybe a lightness and a varied palette that doesn't necessarily come across in the whiskey itself. Um, it still has some of the thick, dark fruit flavors that exist um, and a degree of richness that you would expect from a red wine, but some of those more nuanced flavors are, are, are not there as much. But, you know, maybe you sort of expect that whenever you're taking a 10-year whiskey and then aging it in wine barrels for 10, 12, 18 months, whatever it happens to be, um, you know, you're not going to pick up nearly as much there, right? But it's still a, a fantastic offering. And there's something about red wine finishes for me. And it's going to sound like a bad note. But they almost come across as like a soy sauce note. And I don't mean that in a bad way, a bad way at all. It's just a, um, I don't know, maybe umami. Is umami the, the word I'm looking for there? I, I don't know. I don't know. 
And so the last one that I actually possess, the last last one that I own that we're going to talk about tonight is the Pfeiffer Pavit. I think it's Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer Pavit Reserve um, Cabernet Barrel. Uh, and so Cabernet is not unique um, to whiskey pretty um, I don't think it's necessarily as unique as some of the others are, uh, red wine blends or cognac or Armagnac. Um, Thomas Moore from 1792 is doing a Cabernet blend as well. But um, Pfeiffer Pavit has um, a story that begins with a person who had absolutely no intention of um, necessarily being a part of the wine industry, but you know starts in in rural Georgia and ends up uh, in California during their, their, you know, sophomore year in college for an internship, works their way into, um, some, some pretty, uh, pretty high level positions. And then eventually decides, Hey, you know, her and her spouse eventually decide, Hey, let's start up a wine company. We want to buy some land. We want to, um, get, very deeply involved in creating something of themselves, something that they can kind of own. Um, let's 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 push together our love of food and wine and experiences and make this brand new um, label offering. And so that's exactly what they did. And um, the it always surprises me that I don't know. Maybe surprises the wrong word. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think it's for sure. Yeah, so soy sauce, like I said, it, and it. So Robbie, Robbie just commented in the in the live chat here that the soy sauce. He's gonna have to think about that on his next wine finish. And it, it may not be as much that it tastes like soy sauce, but maybe the feeling that it leaves behind in my mouth is similar to that of what happens after um, eating something that has a high degree of soy sauce. So 